Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Merrill Dubrow. For those of you who are turning in to see Jamin Brazil be the host of the Happy Market Research Podcast, we're going to change it up a little bit. On today's show, which is the 100th podcast for the Happy Market Research Podcast, uh, my name is Merrill Dubrow, and I'm president and CEO of Mark Research. And I actually am going to put the host on the hot seat, and we are going to interview Jamin Brazil. Super excited about this. Great. Thanks, Jamin, as I am and everybody else. But before we get into even a little bit of Q&A and put Jamin on the hot seat, I just want to tell everybody that this could not be made possible without G3 Translate. This episode is brought to you by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers, insight professionals across the world. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages. They are fluent in market research. For more information, please visit Nancy at g3translate.com. Jamin, how are you today, sir? This is a big highlight for me. For me, it's a huge highlight. I'm super excited and honored that... Now, we should also level set. Merrill has been on the show two times. He was my very first podcast, which was published as number 105. And then we had him on earlier this year as an update, kind of post-transaction as he acquired Mark Research. And now, you know, he and I, of course, have been longstanding friends in the market research industry. He said, hey, has anybody ever interviewed you on the show? And I'm like, that's never happened. That's crazy. And then at the same time, we're coming up on our 100th show. In fact, this is the 100th show for the Happy Market Research podcast. Well, let me tell you something. The pleasure is all mine. I listen to your podcast when I work out, when I drive home. And I want to thank you for allowing the opportunity to be on, I guess, in some way for a third time. So let's just get right into it. The 100th episode, wow, of the podcast. Just talk a little bit about the motivation behind starting the podcast. The motivation is different than where I ended up, where I am right now, and then where I'm going with the podcast. The challenge that I had exiting Focus Vision is there's a fair amount of restriction around what you can and can't do in the industry. That's just very normal, part and parcel. Whenever there's a transaction, you know, you're, you're partaking in, a, in that transaction, selling a company. So I was fairly limited for about a year and a half after exiting the CEO role of Focus Vision. When I thought about what can I do to be able to maintain engagement and brand inside of the space, video, you know, vlogs, really popular, that takes a lot of effort and learning. Podcasts seem to me to be the thing that would be the fastest an easiest way for me to be able to engage with my peers and insights leaders across the space. So that was really where I started my my journey back in. It was June of, of uh, 2018. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, the next part though, this is what, this is a thing that I think is really remarkable about podcasting. You know, my, my background, I love, I've been consuming podcasts really for about 10 years now. And they occupy a space for me when I'm commuting. And I've spent a, has spent a ton of time in the car. And there's a lot of data that's being sub- substantiated talking about the relationship that is built between the host and the consumer, the listener. It's, a, it's almost like a, it's a little different than it is even in a radio context. And I, I don't understand all the psychology and the reasons why, except that the content is chosen specifically by that particular listener 
There's a lot more personalization, I guess I would say, around what it is that you're consuming. And that, plus the fact that you're occupying somebody in an entertaining way, and they're hopefully learning something. So there's a much greater level of engagement that you're creating with that, with that audience. So there's this like brand impact. The third thing that I want to mention about the pod, power of podcasting and why I'm such an advocate of every single market research company out there starting one or, or being on one, and that is SEO. So, you know, organic SEO is gold in this day and age. When you think about how do I, as a market research company, engage the new researcher, the 22 to 28 year old, who probably has between one and $5 million worth of annual budgetary spend, you know, how do I make sure that I'm top of mind in that demographic? And and I can tell you, SEO is really important element to that. They've got, you've got to be discoverable. And so what podcasts do is if you transcribe those podcasts and build them out inside of your website, and then of course do linking uh, on, on LinkedIn, then it creates this great kind of lifting of your overall SEO and will help other companies that are looking for businesses or solutions that you provide to benefit from and find you quickly. Wow, that's uh, that's interesting, and that's that's pretty impressive. So I remember when I started a blog, and I wrote a blog for ten years, three times a week, posted on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I had a lot of metrics and numbers and best practices. So we would send out an email blast on Tuesday at eleven o'clock. I would keep the post to about uh, a little less, two hundred eighty-two words. So I was going to say a little less than three hundred, but actually two hundred eighty-two was kind of our average. And I would track how many comments and how many hits. Let's talk about some best practices around the podcast and even some surprises that you've had over the last 10 months that you know you didn't think of. But really, if somebody wanted to start a podcast as well, Jamin, I remember all the mistakes that I made on my blog. Can you just share some of those best practices and some pitfalls to definitely stay away from? Well, first of all, you, I remember when you first told me, and this goes back maybe four years uh, about the blog that you were posting and your LinkedIn activity. And so the, I actually applied the principles that you had there, which is consistency of delivery and, and to my podcast. And so when I, when I launched Happy Market Research, the intent was to release two episodes a month. We actually have done a lot better than that, but it was all about the consistency of making sure the interview pipeline is full and making sure the production cycles are on point, and then you know making sure that the social media posting that's around each podcast is effective and being followed like our religion, right? I mean, that's, that's the core of it. And so the first thing I would say that you've got to do is maintain rigor around just being consistent with the delivery. Consistency is more important than quality. It's more important than um, quite literally any other, any other KPI, because you, you, as soon as you miss a week or two or three, then all of a sudden you can start falling off of people's, out of people's attention. And then you lose that listener. So you want to maintain that engagement, get something out there, even if it's only for a few minutes. The second thing that I, that I learned, actually the big learning for me, and, and this is a great, a great hack that I hope the listeners will, will pay attention to. If you go to a conference, it's a great opportunity to do on-site interviews with even other exhibitors, right? 
if you do that, and you don't have to be part of the conference, you don't have to have the permission to do this, you can just walk around and do it. There's a couple of companies that have actually been doing this for a few years. Some use video and some use audio. Then what you do is write a blog post as soon as that event is over, and you reference each one of the people that you interviewed, whether it's just a snippet, quote, or whatever. And I should also say, it doesn't have to be video or audio. It could also just be a long-form blog or a short-form blog. And then reach out, DM, reach out to that person or people that you interviewed and say, hey, listen, I wrote this post or did this podcast or did this vlog. Feel free to push it on your channel. And now what you've done is you've create, you've really created this like massive growth opportunity to your personal network and brand that is really, really hard to do at you know, in an inorganic or a different approach. As soon as you start doing that, you're going to start knocking on other doors that otherwise you wouldn't have access to. I can give you one example. I haven't actually done the interview yet, but the CMO of MasterCard has been responsive to me on Twitter, right? And those are like, those are really, really difficult people to be able to get in contact with. But if you start are consistent with the delivery, then and you start incorporating other people in the conversation. In other words, it's not about me, it's about them. All of a sudden, you're adding value to the equation and people want to have those conversations with you and you'll be easier and easier to move up up channel to uh, prospective buyers. I don't have anything to sell him, by the way, either. <laughs> it's literally just adding value to the audience that I'm having because he has a lot of information that probably all of us would care about. All right, but let's level set for a second on one of the things you just said. You may not, and this I think is an important aspect of it because you know I, I really am a networker to the nth degree. You may not have something to sell him today, but that could change in a week, a month, or in a year. Absolutely. And the mere fact that you have that connection, there's no reason to draw upon it in the next two years, three years, or whatever it is. You know, And I think that's important. It's such a great point. I think that value is delivered really two ways by successful companies. One is it's got to be people first. So, and you know, this is a CEO and owner of a business, you know, you've got to invest in your people because that's your, the better they are, the bigger the lever of your organization to create impact inside of, in our, in our world, market research or consumer insights, right? So that's, that's really important. But the other part of it is this, this notion of karma or whatever you want to call it. It, it. The more that we add value to relationships, then the better our personal network is and the more that at some point that comes back to you, whether it's through a referral uh, that they might make once I, once you do have something to sell or you know there is a tra potential transaction in play or whatever, right? So I'm always looking for ways that I can add value as opposed to ways that I can extract value. The extraction happens, but if you think about it like from a sales, and I'm a salesperson born and bred, but from a sales lens, if I go out with an ask and I don't have the value part of that equation, I'm probably not going to actually ultimately have a transaction and I might even hurt myself. But if I can really love the pain that that person is experiencing and that's where my focus is on that pain, then it becomes really easy for me to understand, do I have a product or service that maps to their pain point? If the answer is yes, let's talk about that. If the answer is no, who in my network does? And let's facilitate that conversation. And I don't even get like a piece of the transaction in those, right? It's just like, let's facilitate the transaction. And then both parties start loving me. So I think that there's definitely a self-serving element to this intent. But as long as it's operating from a place of, and this is hilarious, but selflessness. So you have yep. this like tension, right? Then 
the better off you're going to yeah. be. No, I think I think it's an important point. All right, bud, we're going to go way back in the day. Before you were the man at Focus Vision, before you were the founder of Decipher, because obviously anybody who meets you very, very quickly knows that you have entrepreneurial spirit to the nth degree, right? If that was an Olympic sport, you'd get the gold in a heart in a heartbeat. But here's my question. Where did that come from? Was that your grandfather, your great-grandfather? Was that your parents, your siblings? Did you have a paper route when you were a kid? Did you mow lawns? Where did you get that amazing entrepreneurial spirit? Because my belief is, I don't think you can, I, I'm not so sure you can teach that. I don't think you could just plug somebody out of, of you know, randomly and say, okay, you're going to be, you're going to have entrepreneurial spirit. So where did you get that? I, that's a great point. I actually have thought a lot of, and done a fair amount of research on this subject. Is entrepreneurship DNA or is it a function of your environment? I think it's both. So my grandparents were entrepreneurs on my mom's side. My um, parents, both entrepreneurs. You know, my dad had a full-time job, which provided benefits and a consistent income, but he always had a, a you know, whether it was a small family farm or some sort of side thing going on. So I definitely think there's a learned behavior. You know, we didn't grow up with very much money, my sister and I. And so if we wanted things, we were required to figure out how we were going to make enough money to do that, right? And so I was the kid that walked around the neighborhood once a week in the summertime asking if I could mow your lawn. <laughs> so I, that, that was great. Yeah, that was literally part of my narrative. Um, you know, I saved enough money so I could buy a car by the time I was 15 years old and then wound up, you know, driving it, of course, maybe a little bit earlier than I should have, but, you know, it had some, had, definitely had some perks in that way. So I've, I've been traditionally self-reliant and I put self in quotation marks because I actually don't think anybody is self-reliant. We're all, I'm very thankful, you know, I live in a country that allows me to have the, the freedom to be able to do the things that I do and have a support structure, whether it's family or friends uh, or co and coworkers, et cetera. So, you know, I mean, I, we are a product of our environments, absolutely. I really knew that I had the gene when I was in seventh grade. So my parents, I grew up in a real small rural community, predominantly, predominantly Hispanic, about 75% Hispanic. And uh, most of those people were migrant workers because, you know, just the nature of agriculture in the Central Valley is, is or Central Valley, California, I should say, is, is exactly that. And so... Seventh grade, I had an, I was first on the bus and last off. It's about an hour commute each way. During that time, you get to know the forty-eight souls that are on the or whatever number it was that day on that on that bus, right? And, and including the bus driver. And so you got kind of bored, whatever. This is before cell phones, Merrill, if you can believe that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once a month, my parents would take my sister and I into. Uh, a bigger town that this is Fresno. There was a mall. I would buy product at a surf shop and I would then take that product on uh, back on the bus and I would wind up selling it at about a three to one ratio. So that for me, and I literally had built out on paper, I built out my sheet of like of inventory costs, number of things, you know, what was selling, what wasn't, where's the maximum margin. It was really funny for a seventh uh, seventh grader to be able to do all that with with literally zero training in in what any of that you know what gross margin was or <laughs> customer acquisition cost or anything like that. So 
you know, it was a really interesting kind of, it just made sense to me that there was a way to be able to make money and add value to products early on. And I just have carried that with me my entire life as, um, you know, in the, in the form of a side hustle. And that was actually as the CEO of Focus Vision, one of my challenges was having that discipline of, you know, not being able to do any sorts of investments inside of our space or side hustles or anything along those lines. You know, obviously as a, a initial founder and, and owner in Decipher, that was treated, I think, in that same mentality of entrepreneurship. So yeah, it definitely started early for me. It, and it was some combination of like DNA and family, I would say. That's great. Oh, that's, that's, it's amazing to me. You know, when I look back on my career, Jamin, I had a number of people who helped me along the way, guided me, mentored me, people like uh, Marianne Schaefer and, and John Bonney and Sanford Schwartz and, and Jim Fredrickson, um, who really um, probably gave me an opportunity to um, sort of reach for a position and really gave me the opportunity to probably maximize my potential. Who were some of the people in your career? I mean, who really helped you along the way, who who taught you, who you trusted, who gave you the advice and pointed discussions? Well, frankly, when Jamin as a 26-year-old, you know, kid didn't want to hear. Anybody jump out at you? Yeah, there's there's two people. One was a guy named Dick McCullough, who was the founder and CEO or president of Macro Consulting, which is the company that hired Jamie Plunkett and myself. Jamie Plunkett, of course, being the other, one of the other co-founders, along with Ervin Andreessen of Decipher. Um, and and so in ninety in ninety four, I tried, I started a business. It was a website consulting company where I just create websites for companies in the Bay Area. I hated the sole proprietorship journey. Didn't have the expertise to actually pull it off. So um, one of my customers was this gentleman named Dick McCullough. And I said, you know, I, I, they actually hired me to do a, um, set up a website and do some other e-commerce things for them. And I told him, this is gonna be the last thing I do and I'm gonna get a job. And, and he was kind enough to extend an analyst position to me. I thought it was interesting, took the job and, and within literally three days, I knew that market research was for me, even though three days before that, I didn't exactly know what in the heck market research was. I thought it was some thought it was marketing with an extra word. So the, you know, I owe a lot, I owe everything uh, to him really for being willing to take a chance on uh, a math geek and programmer like myself. You know, the other person that for me comes to mind is one of my very first clients at Decipher. And that's a gentleman named Mark Sass of Summation Research out of Cincinnati. He was a huge supporter of me early on at the, you know, any so when you start a business, you really don't have anything, right? I mean, you don't, you don't have any credibility. You don't have any software. You don't really have any infrastructure. It's all just risk uh, for somebody to say, yeah, okay, I'll spend with you. And he was willing to step out and trust me that I was going to be able to build the software in the, in the time frame that I needed to, in order to deliver to his customer which is, as you know, really, really a risky proposition. I over-delivered on that relationship, by the way, and um, he's still, he still, I just had dinner with him when I was in Cincinnati uh, for MRMW a couple weeks ago. So, you know, we're, we'll be lifelong friends. The, the, other, the other person is Steve Carr, who was formerly of Intuit, you know, maker of Quick and, Quick and QuickBooks. 
he was also my, he was my number two customer and, and you know I just man it's, having a big brand like that coming alongside you when you start a business and then an agency relationship coming alongside you it just makes all the difference in the world in your overall confidence and I was very fortunate that both of those individuals were willing to take a chance on me and then you know let me get through my you know because when we started decipher it was all bootstrapped there was zero dollars from outside capital invested in it. So it was a lot of just terror <laughs> yeah, uh, going through that process. And um, yeah, so I think those two people really stood out to me. And of course, you know, my business partners, uh, Arabin, who I mentioned, Jamie, Kristen Luck later uh, in that in that journey, and, and then all the, the fantastic customers and, and relationships that I've had. And then, and then even more recently, you know, Rohair Verholst was the first, well, him and Edwin Wong were the first people to be a brand, you know, material, like insight professionals inside of major brands, BuzzFeed and LinkedIn, uh, to be on the Happy Market Research podcast. And, and having their names there created a tremendous amount of weight for and credibility in, in our space as, oh, well, maybe I should tune in, right? And so, you know, you see a big, you saw, I saw big leaps there as soon as they're, um, with it becoming easier and easier to get other uh, brands on the podcast. That's great. No, that's exciting. Let's talk about that for half a second. Let's go the podcast by the numbers, if if you don't mind. <laughs> um, you know, we know how many podcasts you've had. How many downloads? How many hits do you have? Would you say? Do you know? Yeah, so we're we're thirty thousand total downloads uh, across the episodes. the The numbers have been trending up, thankfully. So every week is a little bit better. There's never been, and this has surprised me actually. There's never been this like waterfall moment where, you know, all of a sudden thousands of people like jump on an episode. It's just, it's quite literally a grind of incremental improvement. Right now, episodes are around uh, plus or minus 500 per, um, and then, you know, downloads per episode. And that happens usually within three or four weeks. But what's really interesting is we're seeing stuff that was recorded a while ago like picking on Edwin Wong for a minute uh, with BuzzFeed. So, you know, with that, that particular episode, that'll, people will still, once they find a new, a new listener finds the podcast and they actually see the volume of content available, they'll go back in time and listen to those other episodes. So the shelf life on podcasts is really remarkable. They're this great evergreen content that you and your marketing team could leverage to, um, you know, pull, people into your whatever it is your you know your thesis your thesis or your um about the company or personal brand or what products or what have you right so uh, it's it's a really interesting it plays a lot differently than webinars which i've done hundreds of webinars as well at decipher and focus vision and in, in that framework webinars tend to be very time sensitive uh, and so as soon as you're done with the promotion it's kind of like off the you know that loses the visibility in the marketplace functions a little bit more like a long form blog, I guess in that way, but podcasts are weird. They just continue to, seems like they continue to grow over time uh, based on the interests of the listeners. Wow, that's great. So I pride myself on being up to speed in terms of the insights research community and talk to a lot of people from a networking standpoint, but I think you've got me beat. You know, you seem to really have a pulse on the industry, the people within it, the strategies, the direction that a lot of these companies are going. Is there a, a company or a person, Jamin, that 
really impresses you today that you know may have nailed it with their strategy with their company direction that you you know your ears perk up a little bit more when you when somebody from that company says something or that entrepreneur from that company says something anybody jump out at you or a company or a name i've been really interested in what's happening at cantar this year okay they have gone through a real and pardon my language shit show right with all the issues at the at the top with thinking about like wpp so you know there's there's been a lot of tension i would say there and and maybe even mismanagement certainly distractions and I feel like the rebrand of Kantar has been really well done, kind of like the consolidation of Miller Brown, et cetera, uh, into this unified front. And I personally, you know, when they announced they're doing their own research automation solution, I think that is really smart for a company like that to execute on. They're well positioned in the marketplace to be able to take advantage of it. And I, so anyway, I think that's actually really interesting. The other company I'm looking at right now is Ipsos which I know is completely counterintuitive, right? It's all, <laughs> we should think about these smaller kind of startups, but you know, Ipsos has been around for a long time, a really long time. They've, they've gone through a lot of pressure with the move from com- of companies going from traditional trackers to more of these like pulse-based products. And they've recently hired uh, a head of Global Insights. George is his name. You can find him on LinkedIn. Um, and he's from outside of the industry. I had the opportunity to meet him. He's not going to be on the podcast, but he's been kind enough to introduce me to other people only because he's a little bit, I think, shy. But I have a, a lot of respect for the leadership in Cantar to recognize that they need to be able to invest in innovation and strategy. And that's exactly what George is responsible for. I'm really bullish on the big guys right now. They've just gone through so much transition and they've weathered the storms and they've I think in a lot of ways are have or are doing a good job of right-sizing the businesses so that it's matching the new, what the new customers' needs are. And I think that there's a lot of humility that's now been injected into those into the big boys' businesses. Looking at it from the other direction, companies that are doing it well, I, I've got to say I'm really impressed with what Dave's done at Vox Popme. His business, I don't know how big it is, but I would say it's guessing it's between five and $10 million of you know reoccurring revenue, which is a meaningful business, software business at his state. That's really, an, and, they're, and they're going through big growth, right? And, and it's, it's hard taking a new, you know, taking video on as a legitimate business, you know, that, because it's completely different price points, I think, than certainly I had it decipher it's a lot lower it's a completely different play and then you know how does it fit in the corporate budget these are really big questions and then andrew at remesh what he and gary have built inside of that company is also very exciting i think they've done a hell of a good job of positioning themselves as different i think you know the the next phase for both of those businesses is going to be you know, if, if you're inside of a brand you, and you have an insight need, you still, you still think about, okay, qualitative and quantitative, meaning survey or focus group or IDI, right? So then the, then the question becomes, um, if I'm going to do one of these other methodologies, like a remesh session, you know, where's that dollar coming from? Do I have to do a survey still? Do I have to do an IDI still? And if the answer is no, then I'm competing with that existing dollar. If the answer is it's a, a new dollar, then um, 
now I've got to increase my overall budget and that's where is the juice really worth the squeeze. So I think as those types of companies and technology in general does a better job of addressing the budgetary dollar and positioning themselves against existing spend, you know, it's going to be, you're going to see a big opportunity for, for increased land grab. No, that's great. And, the, and those companies are all, uh, all impressive and doing some really, really good things. I, I will admit that, um, you know, mentioning two of the larger research companies that's kind of on your, I don't know, on your short list is interesting and I'll have to pay more attention to them. But let's talk about this for a second. So obviously there's so much content in the insights research world right now. It's it's unbelievable. But what are the, you know, I, I pride myself, Jamin, on being a resource. So let's build five or six resources for people that you know, what do you read on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, whether it's online, the old fashioned magazine, whether it's a blog, whether it's a podcast, you know, what are the, the six or seven things or whatever the number is that you are, are, are doing to keep informed on this industry that really is moving at light speed right now? It's, it's, you're right about it. Moving at light speed is crazy. Yep. You and I were both at IIEX in Austin last week and there was a lot more, I mean, there were 75 people that I or businesses that I counted on the show floor uh, exhibiting. And it might've been more or less, I don't know. Well, certainly not less. I know I at least counted that many, but I mean, there was more exhibition there than I've seen before. And I mean, there was a, it's just a lot of companies I had not heard of. So it's a real interesting seeing how many new people are entering into the space. And that kind of takes me to one of my, my, what I'm seeing as a macro trend and, you know, the, the Qualtrics acquisition is just elevated the overall visibility of market research really for the first time in my career inside of inside of the money, whether it's VC or um, uh, private equity. So, you know, there's gonna, I, I anticipate we're really at the beginning of a J curve from a valuation perspective, which, you know, hey, congratulations maybe to you and, uh, you know, your acquisition of Mark. I think that that timing is probably was probably worked out to be perfect. Um, but in terms of where I go, what I, what I read every day I read, and I'm religious about it. Um, MR web. Okay. I'm, I'm sure, you know, Nick over there. That's a really nice, fast, you know, he usually highlights four stories, something interesting. Here's another hack for the, for the audience. So it's on, get on Twitter or LinkedIn, either one's fine. And as soon as he posts the people that have been recently promoted or hired for new roles, you can just DM them and say, hey, congratulations. It, it takes like, you know, two to three minutes to kind of change your headspace, craft the email or the notification. So it's like two sentences. And, and I tell you what, if you do that, you'll start expanding your network. Like if I, if I worked for you, Merrill, as a sales guy, I would never not do that. That would be something I would do all the time. <laughs> It's like such a great way to connect because again, you're just, it's one-sided. I'm not selling you anything. I'm just saying congratulations and I'm paying attention. The other part that I, that I think is for me, the other, other place that I, I gather all my information really from is conversations. So, you know, whether, whether I'm, I've tried and go out of my way to ask a lot of questions. I feel like I do a pretty good job of asking questions and being inquisitive. And then I feel like I do a good job of just shutting up and listening, which has actually been a learned skill for me <laughs> through podcasting. So yeah, it's, 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 you know, a lot of MR web. And then obviously the, I'm fortunate to have a deep network and I'm regularly daily interacting with insights professionals, but the majority of reading that I do, and I, I read quite literally a book every two weeks. So about two to three a month, 
um, is, you know, centric around just outside of the industry and usually something about business. So like I just finished rereading predictably irrational. I don't know if you had a chance to read that or not. It's a, for me, it's a top book talks about our decision-making processes as human being, uh, Dan, Arling, I think I can't remember his last name, but anyway, it's a fantastic book. I've consume at a regular pace, and again, a little off topic, science fiction. Mm -hmm. So people want to know what I'm reading. I'm happy to, you know, they feel free to let me know. I did just finish a really big, big book on that subject called Battlefield Earth. <laughs> it's a crazy long. I think it was the longest science fiction book ever written, actually. Uh, my wife couldn't believe it. It's like a freaking tomb. You know, kind of the normal B-school stuff, I, I usually refresh on that, whether it's Innovator's Dilemma or Crossing the Chasm. Uh, I'll read those, gosh, once every every year, probably. I'll skim through them again, just kind of refresh where my head is. I'm a fan of Gary Vaynerchuk. So oh, yeah. while well, I don't listen to his podcast, but I do read his material and try to tune into his vlog, you know, as occasionally as I can. Uh, uh, that's a, another go-to resource for me. Okay. That's great. No, that's, that's important. So let's take a, a stop down memory lane for a half a second. If, is, if you had to pinpoint one and only one move or decision that you made that really defined your career, that it took off, that it, 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 it was just, wow. Is there anything that jumps out that you can share with the listeners today? I mean, without a doubt for me, it was when we acquired Kristen Lux Company in 2007. Okay. So she had left OTX and her and Shelly Zalas had started that business and sold it. You know, Patrick Comer was part of that as well, part of the OTX mafia, now the uh, uh, founder and CEO of small company called Lucid. Yep. <laughs> so when Kristen left, she started a business forefront consulting, had about half a dozen or a dozen actually employees that she uh, brought on, built some interesting technology. But, you know, at the end of the day, Jamie and I both knew that we were strong introverts and we needed marketing expertise. Kristen, we thought completed the, blind, uh, the visibility in the market. So uh, we did that acquisition and then it just like immediately benefited the overall business from a growth and a vision perspective. Um, plus in the middle of that whole process, about four years later, you know, she wound up starting a business called women in research or, or wire, which is now a um, part and parcel, I think with the industry, right? Um, you can't go to an event without connecting with women in research. And she actually has done a lot for elevating the conversation of, of, um, equality and accessibility and diversity inside of market research, all in the con context of better business outcomes and a better world. So, you know, I think, I think without a doubt for when that acquisition, when we've cemented that acquisition and then wound up rolling it out, uh, which took about three months, that was just like a game changer for, for myself in terms, you know, headspace changed, trajectory changed, just, you know, overall visibility changed. It was it was a big win for us. Wow, that's that's exciting. One of the things that I'll read a couple, three times a week is something called the Players Tribune, which it's um comes out daily. It's written by athletes, about athletes. 
And there's some interesting articles. There'll be some interesting articles that'll come out this week on the NFL draft of people who were in the green room and didn't get drafted. And what are they feeling? What are they sensing? The emotions they went through. But let me ask you a weird question. What would an older Jamin say to a young Jamin? So today, what would you have said to your inner self 20 years ago, Jamin? That's a really interesting question. I think I'd tell myself, be fearless and action trumps everything. I really believe that us as human beings are limited only by our capacity to imagine. So you see this with these standout stories like and personalities like Oprah Winfrey, for example, right? Who came from, you know, just inside of the system, abused, quite literally nothing to an, a global icon. You had the same thing with, anyway, Obama and, and other these fantastic personalities and, and people that I have tremendous respect for. You know, I, I think that one, what we really struggle with as human beings is limiting our overall capacity. And I think a part of that is just a fear of as soon as you say that, then it means that you can do it, right? And so now it's about action. So, so yeah, I think, I think for me, it would be, it would be those things. And, and, you know, if I had, if I could rewrite, and we all have regrets, I have regrets. If I could rewrite my history, the thing I would have done differently at Decipher would have been have had a much bigger vision for what that platform could have been. And it would have actually, in hindsight, being 2020, I, I can see all the steps as to, you know, if that vision would have been there, then we could have attained you know, something much greater. Not to say, I'm not trying to belittle the platform. It's a freaking amazing platform, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, really the the one constraint that we had wasn't competition. It wasn't access to the market. It wasn't total addressable market. It really was just the size of the vision. And you know, what's interesting about that, Merrill, is it's hard to build a billion dollar company. It's hard to build oh, yeah. a million dollar company. Yeah. They're both, you know, 12 hour days, yep. right? They're both seven days a week. So why not just decide I'm going to build a billion dollar company? And so that's that's the framework. That's the that's, thing I think I would have told myself. So in the past few months, I go to Florida a lot to visit my my mom. And and unfortunately, my dad was, was sick. So I was going a lot more uh, regularly than normal. <clears throat> and while I've been down there, I've taken up a game called Pickleball. <laughs> and I know. And it's a real game. It's, it's kind of a... a a racket game that they play in a miniature tennis court. But um, I've been playing, they've, they've built some courts here in the Texas area and I've been playing a little bit. So I played with a buddy of mine and he came over and he said, Hey, um, you know, do you want to play? And I played with like 16 guys and, and I just didn't want to embarrass him. And um, I tend to be a pretty decent racket sport guy. And I played and we did pretty well. And we were talking afterwards and he said, you know, you really, really played well. And I, and I said, you know, if I really want to get better, I think I have to do three things. He goes, okay, what are those three things? And I said, well, I got to serve a little bit better. I got to have patience, a lot more patience than I do because, because it's a tiny court. And if you drill the ball, it's going out. It may only go an inch over the net, but it's still going out if you hit it really hard. And the other thing is, you know, you have to have, it's a finesse game. So it's a doubles game, but it's a finesse angles game. So, and the reason I tell you that boring story is my next question, which is in, in, in my opinion, having self-awareness is the most important thing that you could ever have in your life. Like if, if somebody said, okay, 
what's the one skill you need to be successful? I think it's self-awareness. And you kind of touched upon it where you said, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would have done this, this, this. But here's my question. I would, I would say that a lot of people struggle with self-awareness, Jamin. But I know just in our discussions and listening to you today and a lot of the in-depth discussions that we've had over the years, I know you have a self-awareness. You have this perception and you know who you are. You're comfortable in your skin where everybody is not. What advice do you have or how do you get that self-awareness? Because not everybody has that and it is so critical. I think like the hack there for me, because I certainly didn't have that most of my life. It's been something that I intentionally cultivate. And someone told me once, it's okay to get your way and not be right. Uh, I think it was my wife. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Right. And, 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 and what, and what the hack there is, you know, it's, you don't have to be like, it's my idea. You know, you you see this a lot with converse in conversations, especially in, in context of like a professional you know, in a boardroom or, you know, meeting with your executive team or what have you. And as, as these conversations start specifically around strategic direction or whatever, as the adage goes, every dog's got to pee on the tree. So, you know, you, you wind up having this, you know, whose idea was it or whatever. And, and as soon as I, as soon as I started peeling that back and saying, it doesn't have to be my I, quote unquote idea. I just have to make sure it's the right idea that is going to be the bet that we then place to win. And so the, the core of that stems from humility. And if you can be open-minded to other people's points of view, then as opposed to just having to talk and you know wait until the other person's done talking so that you can then talk again, uh, then I think it really can go a long way to understand. You know, the, the other part of it too, Someone once told me I was I was doing some. Um, I, most people don't know this. I have a theology degree under my undergrad, and I felt like it was an important question, so I wanted to do some deep digging there. And as I went through that process, I wound up spending time. In, I lived in the Philippines and also Hong Kong. Well, in the Philippines, uh, there was a group of us that you know lived together for for months. Like, I think it was like six months. The there was this guy. And I won't tell you his name, but there's no way it could get traced back. That's how old I am. But just in case. So there was this guy and he bugged the hell out of me. Just like, I just couldn't stand him. He just bothered me to death. Like we're in the poorest of the poor. You've got like street, street urgent kids. And this guy's worrying about his, you know, vanilla ice or whatever rapper he was trying to, you know, persona. And so anyways, I, I met with the director of the unit and said, he's really bothering me. What do I do? Uh, he said, Jamin, you want to make sure you learn from him, whatever it is that you need to learn from him. Otherwise, you will have to meet him again. And you won't ever be able to move past this person or that lesson that you need to live. And, I, and I've, met, I've recognized that in myself where I'll have these like, you know, I'll go through something and I don't learn my lesson. And then sure enough, it might be a year, it might be a month, it might be 10 years, but you go through that same exact thing, swap out the nouns, and you have the opportunity to learn. And so I, I think yeah. it's really about trying to like, the players that are in our lives, whether they're good or bad, you know, it isn't about judging that. It's more about learning from them as much as you can. And if, if you can become that sponge, even if it's something as good to say, like, I don't want that, or, you know, I don't, this is a bad behavior. I need to make sure it's not in my life. You know, that's an okay outcome, but you need to be damn sure that you've learned everything you can 
so that you can then move past that stage and on to the next learning. Yeah, there's a valuable lesson there. And I was talking to my son over the summer and he was a lifeguard. It was the first job he had. And he came home one day and he said, I hate, I hate this job and I hate the, the boss. I'm like, well, tell me why. And his, his reasons were very thin. And I said, what you don't understand is there's learning there. I promise you, you will not like every one of your bosses that you have in the next 30 years, okay? Exactly. When I ask people what percentage of their bosses they've had are really good bosses, solid bosses that they learned a tremendous amount of positive from, the answer is proverbial less than 30% and typically in the teens. So that means, put that in perspective, seven out of eight bosses are not that good. But there's tremendous learning within that, assuming you allow yourself to learn and you absorb. And like you said, be a sponge. And look, when you're a boss, you don't want to do this, this, this. And I think there's just tremendous learning. I really do. I love that. You know, we'll kick the horse a little bit more. That that point you're making is so perfect because and the way that you said it is perfect because, you know, if your son can grasp that now, as opposed to complain, that's it. That's and by, the, and by, the, by the way, he can't. <laughs> just so you know, the beauty of that word is if he can. And the answer is I can I can interrupt you and say with a, not even with a smile on my face, with a, a disappointing look, he can't. He just can't. He can't grasp so, it. And, and it's and so this is the part where like you can't you, and that's why I went back to like the hack of you can't be like okay I'm going to cultivate self awareness. There's just like a you have to figure out what you actually do in order to make that happen. Right. And so right. you know that's the and, and and so the you know the the converse is complaining. So if you if you find yourself and you're complaining a lot about your circumstances, the people in your life, whether it's your boss or whatever, then you know you really need to take stock in yourself because at the end of the day, everybody's got the same life. Like for the most part, everybody's got the yep. same, you know, band of life. And so you're, you don't get to blame anybody for where you are or this, what you have or how you feel except yourself. And as soon as you start there, as soon as you can get to that spot, it's not about the market. It's not about the customers. It's not about the product. It's not about my peers, my team. As soon as you can own that, 100% own that and move away from excuses and complaining, then I think that's like the that's like the spot that's perfect because from that you can build anything. Yep. I well said. Well said. Jamin, this has been an honor and a privilege to be the host today and to to actually interview, I guess, the host of the Happy Market Research Podcast. I cannot thank you enough. Again, for all the listeners, this episode is brought to you by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insights professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in market research. For more information, please contact Nancy at g3translate.com. Jamin, again, thank you so much. I've gotten a ton out of this. Without question, all of your listeners will get a tremendous amount out of this. Here is success and happiness for the next 100 episodes in 2019 and beyond. And, and thank you for allowing me to do this today. Absolute pleasure, Merrill. Thank you so much. So what an honor. 